turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I should say turn with me again to Romans chapter 3. We're going to take another week to plumb the depths of what Paul is saying. But just to balance things out, I think, not promising, not vowing vows, but I think next week we might take a whole chapter. Because, yeah, I know, right? But chapter 4 is kind of a unified thought. It doesn't make a lot of sense to, 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 to segregate it. But this week we'll be back in chapter 3 taking care of some unfinished business. Forgive me if I sit, by the way. My knee got a little crabby during first service. On the subject of unfinished business, by the way, um, we've been not doing a great job of communicating. I know that some of you have learned. Um, our brother Rod Walker went home to the Lord this week. Um, by his choice, I mean, yeah, in a way. Um, he suffered a, a massive stroke um, a couple weeks ago. And as he was transitioning to hospice and as they were talking to him about moving from a temporary feeding tube to a permanent feeding tube, he said no. That's not anything that he ever wanted. His son, his sister both agreed. Yeah, we've, we've talked about this. We've talked about this a lot. This isn't a new thought. This isn't uh, the decision of a moment, but rather it's a, it's a longstanding conviction. Um, and less than 24 hours later, he was with the Lord. Um, the service will be here. We don't know when. Um, within a week or so, the family is still coordinating schedules, and we will um, do our best to keep you posted when that happens so that together we can celebrate Rod's life. But Romans chapter 3, there's a thread that we left hanging a couple weeks ago. Let's go back. Let's remember where we were, where we've been. Look beginning at verse 21 where Paul says the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, and only the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't say that last part, that was me, but he means it. He certainly intends it. There's no other way to read what we just read, and what we read all through the New Testament, right? Paul and then other New Testament authors, along with Jesus himself, saying, Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. That's Peter speaking in John's gospel, John 6, 68. Agreeing with Luke, who writes in his not in his gospel, who writes in the book of Acts, Acts 4.12, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, not might be saved, not one option for being saved by which we must be saved. How do we know, though? Why do we believe this, this claim to the singularity of the gospel? That's what we were calling it two weeks ago, when we took a left turn at Albuquerque and instead of talking about singularity, spent time talking about humility. Let's come back to that, the singularity of the gospel. Why are we convinced of it? 
The exclusivity of the gospel. That's what more people call it. The idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That was Jesus' claim. John 14, 6. He is the way. Says who? Jesus. Didn't you hear what you just said there, Patrick? Were you not listening to your own words? Yes, but there are those who will say, Jesus says that to us. He is the way for us because he's revealed himself to us. But isn't it possible that our way of salvation isn't the same as somebody else's? Isn't it possible that some other teacher, some other preacher, some other prophet, some other path might be speaking truth to another culture about their way to salvation, just as Jesus has revealed to us that he is ours? It's not a new question. It's a question that's as old as Christianity. Even older if you think about the challenges that Israel had trying to describe to the nations that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was in fact the one true and living God. Not a new question. A question in the patriarch's day, a question in the apostles' day. Imagine trying to declare the singularity of Christ, the way, that's what Christianity was called in the days of the apostles, the way, while you're walking down the streets and there's a shrine to Zeus and a temple to Aphrodite and, and there are people worshiping and, and, and selling things of, of Athena. It's a challenge in the days of the apostles. It was a challenge in the age of exploration. What was that? Eighth grade was a while ago. Like 1450 to 1750, the Magellan and Columbus and Da Gama and Cabot and all of those guys discovering new worlds, in finding new people, groups who had never heard the name of Jesus. They had their own beliefs, they had their own religions, and they seemed to be doing okay. Their religions were working for them. It's not a new challenge. And it's a challenge in our day with the repudiation of colonialism and imperialism and the emphasis, the embrace of diversity and multiculturalism. How can we be sure that our Jesus is everybody's Jesus? Can be, should be, must be. Why should we believe that Jesus is the way for all people everywhere? Isn't that presumptuous? Isn't that ethnocentric, xenophobic arrogance? Let's talk about that this morning. And Lord, as we, as we do, I pray that you'd overcome the limitations of my words, the, the hindrance of my body that's falling apart, the resistance of our hearts, Lord, our hearts that still love this world, that still cling to this life. Lord, give us eyes to see what lies beyond and give us eyes to see Jesus, who is the way to eternal life. Speak to us now, we ask in your name. So first things first, got three points this morning, we'll get to those, but before we get to them, here's, here's the pre-outline point. Here's the point before the points. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus didn't believe the gospel that he declared, because people will try. They probably have tried. Jesus didn't believe in an exclusive gospel. Jesus didn't say he was God or the son of God. He didn't preach the cross the way that we understand the cross. Okay, just... Set that aside. Dispense with that. People will try to tell you that. Jesus didn't believe the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's simply not true. And it's not worth spending a lot of time on. 
because it's so easily disproven. We've, we've, we've hit four verses already that refuted it, but, but John 8.24 is another if you need another. John 8.24, Jesus says, if you don't believe I am who I say I am, you will die in your sin. That's the New Living Translation or close to it. And that says that as simply as it can be said, if you don't believe I am who I say I am, you will die in your sin. That's one example. There are lots more. The idea that Jesus didn't believe his own gospel, it doesn't hold water. So let's move on. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life for everyone. Why do we believe it? And why do we believe it when one of the greatest prophets of our time says, nay, nay. One of the greatest prophets of our time, <clears throat> our time says, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. There are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. Who said it, anybody? Take a guess. Greatest prophet of our time. Oprah. Yeah. You got there. And she's speaking for a lot of people. And what she's saying, in other words, is all religions, all faiths, all belief systems are essentially the same. They lead to the same place, they climb the same mountain, and on the top of that same mountain is the same God looking down at all of us. Many paths, one God. Except no. Except that's not true. Christianity, three things this morning. Christianity is different. That's going to be our first point. Christianity is uniquely defensible. That's going to be our second point. And Christianity defies other people's attempts to tear it down. Different, defensible, and defiant. Let's start with different. Christianity is different. Different in a lot of ways. Conspicuously different, dramatically, strikingly, stunningly different. The number one way in which it's different, our gospel is a gospel of grace, right? We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. So you'll be ready to give a reason for those who ask about the hope that's within you, to skeptics, to critics, to cynics, who try to tell you, who, who try to say as if it doesn't bear discussion, as if everybody knows all religions are basically the same. No, they're not. And we need to be ready to explain that statement. All religions other than biblical Christianity are essentially the same. Christianity is different. How so? Every other way of salvation, every other road to heaven or Valhalla or Nirvana or paradise or call it what you will, in every culture, in every continent, is man reaching out to God on the basis of his work. If you pray enough prayers, if you pilgrimage to enough of the right places, if you give enough money to the poor, if you fast enough of the right foods, if you're reincarnated enough times, you can earn God's favor. Other religions, every other religion says, follow me, I'll show you how to work your way to salvation. Jesus uniquely says, I am the way of salvation, and I've made a way for you. Every other religion is man reaching up to God on the basis of where Christianity alone is God reaching down to us on the basis of grace. 
based not on our work, but on his finished work at the cross. Maybe the best example of this dichotomy is the parable of the prodigal son, or the story, if you don't think it's a, prodigal, uh, a parable. The story of the, pro, uh, the prodigal son. Why? Because there are parallel stories, it turns out, in other belief systems. Buddhism, for example, also has a tale of a runaway son, tired of living under his parents' roof, leaves home to live his best life now. We know how the biblical story ends, right? The prodigal son runs out of money, he says, anything would be better than this. Mucking out the stables in my father's estate would be better than this. And he goes home with the plan to, to, to offer that proposition. Dad, I'll muck out the stables. I'll do the dirtiest, lowliest work that you have anywhere on the farm just so that I have a roof over my head and, and something to eat. And we know the story. He comes to the end of himself, but he doesn't even get a chance to get the words out of his mouth. He doesn't get a chance to make the offer. In fact, he doesn't even make it in the house. His father rushes out to meet him, throws the robe over his shoulders, puts the ring on his finger, kills the fatted calf, and says, I forgive you and let's feast because grace, because of father's heart. The Buddhist version of this is the son also runs out of money and also returns home, but is met not with grace, but with justice. And he ends up working off the debt that he's incurred as a servant. What the prodigal son in the Bible was ready to do in Buddhism, that prodigal son actually does. He actually endures that. Which brings us back to the proposition, Christianity is different. Christianity says, give up on trying to be judged righteously. You won't be. And you don't want to be judged on the basis of justice. Christianity says, you can't be, you won't be. You should stop trying. You can't earn, you can't earn righteousness. You can receive righteousness, though, based on grace, based on Christ's work, based on his blood. Other religions, again, other religions say, I'll show you how to earn eternal life. Jesus says, I am eternal life. And from this, this central difference emanate lots of other differences. There are other ways in which Christianity is unique, other ways in which the road of Christianity diverges from other roads. I came across a list this week. I, don't, I, I, usually, I clicked on some Christian clickbait and, and I, it, was, it was an article by Frank Powell. And once you get done sifting through all of the ads and all of the distractions and all of the flat, it was actually pretty good. Among other things, he says, the religion sees people as the enemy. And by religion, he also includes other forms of Christianity not grounded in scripture, based on work, not relationship. Religion sees people as the enemy. Jesus sees sin, sees sin and Satan as the enemies. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? People are not the enemy. Sin and Satan are the enemy. Now, do sin and Satan blind people to serve their purposes? Do they delude people into thinking that the cross is their enemy and that Christ's followers are their enemy? Of course, we've all experienced that. But how does Jesus tell us to treat our enemies? To love them. Religion sees people as the enemy. Jesus sees sin as the enemy. Let's keep going. Religion grades righteousness on a curve. Jesus grades righteousness on a cross. 
I like this. And I like this because of something that happened years and years ago when I still thought I was going to be a doctor. And I was taking organic chemistry. I said that first service and, and, and Hannah started to twitch a little bit. <laughs> Got my final exam back in organic chemistry, written in, in red ink right at the top, 23% circled. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> not time to reevaluate life choices. But then I, I saw stapled to the exam was the grading curve. And it turns out that 23% on this particular exam was a B minus. I've never been that happy to get 23% of my life. <laughs> that meant that there were a whole lot of people that scored worse than I did. They failed. Now without the curve, I didn't just fail, I failed bad. I mean, way, way south of D level. I failed bad, but the curve comparing me to other people, I did a little better than average. I went to the professor, I said, why do you write an exam like this that no one can pass? He said, oh, well, there was one 96% on on, on, in the class. I said, tell me who he is, I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna kill him now. <laughs> but understand, we grade ourselves, we want to, we, and we choose to. We grade ourselves on a curve, don't we? Murderers are worse than thieves, are worse than racists, are worse than gossips, are worse than liars. However we order it, we order it, and Jesus says, why are you bothering? Because there is no curve. Because you all fail. There was only one person who passed the test, and that was me. If the analogy was better, he would have gotten 100%. But you, know, you see where I'm going. Only one person in all of history ever got a passing score, and he got a perfect score. The thing is, because of the cross, we can trade exam papers with him. We can trade our failing grade for his A. Christianity's different. Christianity makes God the boss and you and I employees working for wages. Jesus says, no, God is the Father and you are children who freely partake of the riches of his inheritance. At the heart of religion is fear and punishment. At the heart of Jesus is love and mercy. Religion, religion says showing grace is dangerous because what if they don't learn their lesson? Jesus says, I know. Grace lets sinners potentially go unpunished, unchanged unreformed justice lets sinners go unchanged in everything but behavior. Yeah, in the face of justice, somebody might change their actions, their conduct, but only grace has the potential to change a heart. Christianity is different. That's our first big point this morning. Christianity is different. Second big point, if you're taking notes. Christianity is uniquely defensible. That's point number two. Years ago, I was in a room with Amir Zarvati, prophecy guru, Israeli Bible teacher. Some of you listen to his podcast or watch his videos. I don't know where we were. We were he was speaking at our church or we were at a conference, but there were a bunch of us there. And for some reason, the conversation was about ministering to Mormons. 
and people were sharing their favorite verses to go to to share Jesus, to share the truth of the Bible with Mormons. And you know, one, one guy says, oh, well, I, I go to Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 43, we read, before me there was no God formed, nor shall there ever be after me because Mormons believe that you can actually become a god yourself. And another guy says, well, I go Isaiah 44. That says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I'm the first and I am the last. Beside me there's no God. And, and people are saying, well, I go here and I go there and I go to Revelation and I go to this place. A mirror says, I turn here. And he goes to the end of his Bible where mine is falling out because I've turned there too often. He says, I go here to the maps why do you go to the map, Samir? Because the Book of Mormon doesn't have any. His point, biblical Christianity is uniquely defensible. We have evidence that it's true. Christianity is not a story to be believed. It's a promise that can be proven. And I want to hit seven reasons that we've talked about before, seven really sets of reasons that are worth keeping in our heads, keeping where we can access them in case somebody asks for the reason for the hope that's within us. The first is biblical archaeology. Archaeology proves the people, the places, the times, the events that we read about in Scripture actually happened. And the more we dig, the more certain we are. For centuries, people said, well, there was no such person as Pontius Pilate. There's no archaeological evidence that he ever lived until 1961 when an excavation in Caesarea, excavation of, a, of an ancient Roman theater, discovered a limestone cornerstone of this building inscribed with Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Oh, I guess he was a guy. For centuries, centuries and centuries and centuries, people said there's no such person as David. He's a myth. He's a legend. He's an amalgamation of different people. He's an aspirational idea. Until 1993, when people found uh, inscribed on a coin, David, king of Israel. The more we dig, the more the evidence accumulates that the Bible is true. We can trust it, and we can trust the gospel that it tells us, that Jesus, it teaches us, the way of salvation it offers us. Let's keep going. Second set of evidence, fulfilled prophecy. And we talk about this a lot, right? The Bible writes history in advance. More than 300 specific prophecies related to Jesus, his first coming the most recent of which was written centuries before he was born, but all of them, prophecies of his birth, the place of his birth, the time of his birth, the circumstances of his birth, what would happen after his birth and after the things that happened after his birth, his life, his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, and the circumstances leading up to his death, the betrayal that, that occasioned his death, the method of his death, the things he would speak on the cross as he was dying, where he would be buried after his death and his resurrection from death, all fulfilled perfectly, not metaphorically, allegorically, approximately, no, specifically, literally fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Third set of evidences, internal consistency. The Bible is 66 books, not one book. 66 books written by 40 different people over conservatively 15 centuries, probably more. 
across three continents and three different languages, and yet no contradictions. Bible authors who never met each other, who never lived anywhere near each other, who didn't live within centuries of each other, in perfect unity as they tell the story of Jesus. Beyond that, no errors of fact to be found. No errors of science anywhere in the pages of Scripture. The cynic will say, okay, but that's still the Bible testifying to the authenticity of the Bible. Yes, it is, but we call that self-validation. The Bible is demonstrably from outside of our space-time continuum. Otherwise, the things that I just said couldn't possibly be true. The Bible is self-justifying. It proves itself true on its own terms. But let's keep going. For the person who says, I still think that's circular logic, okay, what about, this is for, extra-biblical history? Sources outside of the Bible that agree with the Bible. More than two dozen sources, two dozen independent works written within 150 years of Jesus independently corroborate his life, his teaching, his crucifixion, his resurrection. So it turns out that history agrees with Scripture. Same is true for the Old Testament. Fewer people debate that, that there was a flood, that there was an exodus, that the Assyrians, followed by the Babylonians, both invaded Israel, that Cyrus the Persian was the one who sent the exiles back. Fewer people have a problem with the Old Testament, but, but the point is the evidence is overwhelming that the Bible is true and that people living during and after the time that the Bible was being recorded, believed that it was true. Here's five, scientific accuracy. Touched on it a moment ago, let's circle back to it. When we were going through Job on Wednesday nights a couple years ago, we actually looked at a long list of ways that the Bible was way, way ahead of its time scientifically. The, the jumping off place in Job was where Job, oldest book in the Bible, by the way, probably 4,000 years old, describes the earth as a sphere. There are people in our day still insisting that the earth is flat. Job knew better 4,000 years ago. He said the earth is a sphere. In Psalms, we read that the earth revolves around the sun. Took centuries to catch up with that. In the meantime, they killed Galileo for suggesting that the Bible was right. In Jeremiah, we read that the number of stars, what, how many? can't be counted. In Jesus' day, there were two competing schools of thought. One astronomer said there's 1,026. Another astronomer said, no, 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 it's 1,056. <laughs> Jeremiah knew that the number cannot be counted. Number six, textual veracity. That's a big word. Veracity just means truth, but it rhymes with accuracy in the other words. Textual veracity. What does it mean? It means the Bible is true. It means that the documents that we call the Bible are true, that the Bible hasn't changed or morphed over centuries of, of translation. How do we know? The Dead Sea Scrolls, written very close to the time of Jesus, prove that the Bible, that the Old Testament scripture, the Hebrew scriptures that we're reading, are the same ones that were being read in Jesus' day. As for the New Testament, how do we know that the New Testament has been transmitted accurately? If we go to the early church fathers, they collectively quote the New Testament more than one million times. We can completely reconstruct the New Testament from the writings of the early church fathers. That proves that the New Testament we have is the New Testament the apostles wrote.
Number seven, to seal the deal, eyewitness testimony. Eyewitnesses declare Jesus was who he said he was, lived a perfect life, performed miracles, signature miracles that Isaiah and others said. This is how you'll recognize Messiah. He's going to bring sight to the blind. He's going to do these other things. Watch for it. When someone does it, that's the Messiah. Jesus controlled nature. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. And oh yeah, he was himself raised from the dead in front of 500 witnesses. Eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony of many people who were themselves put to death when they refused to recant. Many, many people given the opportunity, deny that Jesus rose from the dead and will let you live. Refuse to do so. Can't do that. Why not? Because he, he rose from the dead. Chuck Colson, if you're my age or older, you know the name. He was part of the Watergate scandal. Later became a Christian, um, active in prison ministry. Chuck Colson said the Watergate scandal proves that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, those are two things that seem to have nothing to do with one another. What are you saying, Chuck? He's saying 12 people who were part of the Watergate cover-up couldn't keep a secret for three weeks. <laughs> 12 people kept a secret for 30 years? And all but one of them were put to death, and one of them was, they tried to put John to death and they failed? Don't buy it. Christianity is different, it's defensible. It, and, and here's the third D for this morning Christianity is different and defensible, and it defies every attack by the pluralists. Pluralists who believe that there are paths plural to God. That's where we get the name. Christianity defies every accusation. Oh, biblical Christianity is arrogant. Claiming Jesus is the only way. Who do they think they are? This is where, <clears throat> this is where logic is our friend. Logic's always our friend, especially in apologetics. Because apologetics, defending the faith, turns out, it, it comes down to two things. Apologetics comes, out to correct, comes down to correcting errors of fact and errors of logic. Oh, Christianity is so error. That's an error of logic. Because usually what they mean is not Christianity is arrogant, but Christians are arrogant. Sadly, that's often true. And it couldn't matter less. Not, not for these purposes. It matters. But for proving or disproving Christianity, that's an ad hominem fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. The fact that people who believe something are flawed can't, can't, it, it doesn't change the validity of the argument. My knee is crabby this morning. My good knee was the knee that got surgically repaired, what, four or five years ago. The surgeon that I went to, because my knee wasn't getting better no matter what I did, he was arrogant. As, as surgeons often are. He was convinced he was the smartest person, not just in the room, but in the building and probably in the city of Wichita. Had a bedside manner like a blacksmith. I did not like him. And in fact, I decided not to have him do my surgery. But he wasn't wrong that I needed surgery. The fact he was a jerk didn't mean he was wrong. Some will say, okay, but, but that's not what I'm saying, Patrick. 
I'm not saying Christians are arrogant. I'm saying the claims of Christianity are arrogant. To claim exclusivity, to say Jesus is the only way and every other way is wrong. What do you call that if you don't call that arrogant? I call it another problem of logic. Not mine, yours. For that accusation to hold water, you have to already believe your conclusion. To say you're arrogant, to say your way is better than my way, that doesn't make any sense unless you've already decided that one way is as good as the other. Let me, let me get there by an analogy. If I say there are lots of hamburgers in Wichita, but I know where to get the best one. Because you can go to Freddy's and you can go to Five Guys. And soon you'll be able to go to Smashburger. Thank you, Patrick Mahomes. If you drive down to Dallas, you can go to In-N-Out, or you can go to Bricktown or a dozen other places, but I'm, there is no debate. The best is at TJ's, and if you think differently, you're just wrong. You're entitled to your wrong opinion, but that's what it is. Okay, that's arrogant. Because we're talking about something that by definition is a matter of taste. It's a matter of preference. And by the way, don't come find me and tell me where the best hamburger is. <laughs> It's an illustration. <laughs> it's not the important part. The point is, if you don't already know that what you're talking about is a matter of opinion, not fact, you have to be open to the possibility that, that it is a matter of fact, that it can be proven, it can be demonstrated, because facts exist. Sometimes they're inconvenient. It doesn't change that they're real. Two plus two equals four. When I balance my checkbook, I wish that wasn't true, but it's always true. Gravity is 32 feet per second per second. If I fall off of this chair, I'm going to really regret that, but it's still going to be true. My F-150 gets 14 miles a gallon in the city. I really hate that that's true, but it's still true. It's not style or taste or preference, it's fact. My daughter's best friend from elementary school had a baby yesterday. And, and, and Michaela went over to visit her and they were talking and how's the baby and what were the Apgar stores, stores and all the other stuff that you, you know, you'd talk to new moms about. And, and one of the questions was, well, does, does, does the baby have jaundice? Because sometimes newborns do. And when they do, it's not a big deal because physicians know how to treat that Usually it's, you know, let's put you under this blue-green light and that'll clear things up. Imagine if my daughter's friend said, no, 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 no lights for my baby. I'm just going to wash her really good in hydrogen peroxide because that's what I used to get out the yellow in my socks. So it'll work on my baby. That would be wrong. And if the doctor said, no, that's wrong, and in fact that's, probably detrimental to your baby's health, we know how to treat this condition, they wouldn't be arrogant. They would be kind. Just like you and I saying to someone, you have a terminal condition. You have a fatal malady called sin. I know how to treat it. His name is Jesus. That's not arrogant. That's kind. If biblical, biblical Christianity is provable, then it's in the realm of fact, not opinion. 
The only way to, to describe that as arrogant is, is, is to say that you know and you can prove that it's opinion. Okay, but before we agree to that, can we talk about it? And can I take a shot at, at showing why I think it's wrong? Because biblical Christianity is provable. It can't be arrogant. We can be arrogant in presenting it. But the fact of it is neither arrogant nor humble. It's just what is. Here's another thing that's true. Because Christianity is demonstrably true, it cannot be insensitive. Truth is truth. It doesn't have feelings. You and I can be sensitive or insensitive in sharing truth, but truth is truth. I bring this up because that's another accusation leveled against biblical Christianity. Well, you're, you're ignoring the fact that religion and religious belief is cultural. It's contextual. If you were born in Pakistan, that's a Muslim context. And so to be a follower of Islam, that would be culturally authentic. And to suggest that someone should do otherwise, that's disrespectful. That's condescending. That's colonialism. Someone born in India is likely Hindu. Same thing. We need to respect, we need to honor their beliefs. Again, we run into a logical fallacy. The problem with logic here is called a genetic fallacy. It's, 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 it's like ad hominem. It's judging a claim based on the person making the claim, based on where the claim comes from. My parents said it's true, so it must be true. He didn't even graduate from high school. It can't be true. In this case, saying, well, someone was born in Pakistan, so Islam must be your truth. What that's saying is that truth depends... Truth is malleable depending on where you were born, depending upon who shared it with you. That's not how truth works. Truth doesn't change based on who speaks it. If, 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 if you were born in Rome in Jesus' day, statistically, you'd almost certainly believe in a flat earth that revolved Sorry, the, and, the, and the sun revolving around the earth, and depending upon your cultural background, you might believe that that earth was resting on the back of a turtle. Well, that was their truth. No, that was their error. It was a well-intentioned error. It was innocent, it was unavoidable, but it was error nonetheless. And here's the ironic thing about it. If you like irony, you'll like this. Saying otherwise is also exclusive and intolerant. Person claiming, well, truth is a function of birthplace ignores the fact that that, that truth that they're assigning to someone based on their birthplace is also likely to be exclusive, almost certainly. Let's step on a religion for a second. My point is, if the earth is flat, it cannot also be a sphere. If the earth circles the sun, then the sun cannot also circle the earth. They're mutually exclusive, which means they're exclusive. If we go back to talking about what we're talking about, every religion is exclusive. Every religion says the other ones have it wrong. Islam says that Jesus was a prophet who died. Christianity says that Jesus was the Messiah who died and rose again. Judaism says Messiah hasn't come yet. Buddhism says there is no Messiah. Hinduism says there are many Messiahs. Which one is right? Which one is true? 
each one will mutually claim the others to be wrong. And to, and to say, well, then there's no choosing because people disagree, again, is to ignore how facts work, is to ignore what truth is. We have to allow for the possibility that one might be able to prove itself not like the others. If we decide that all religions are the same, all we're doing is staring at the wrapping paper and ignoring what's in the box. And all the while, more irony for you. The Hindu born in India, the Muslim born in Pakistan, is, is, is holding to this exclusive worldview that they would turn against the pluralist given the opportunity. If someone said to them, your way isn't the only way, it's just the way that you've chosen because of who your parents were and where you were born, your truth is an accident of circumstances, they're going to turn around and say, no, 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 no. What you're saying is, is a product of your circumstances. You believe what you believe. You believe that all faiths are the same. You believe that there's no, no truth. All truths are equal because of where you were born. You were born in a 21st century Western context, and you went to school and somebody told you that. And the person who started the debate saying Christians are intolerant is defeated by their own argument. The reality is that Christianity, biblical Christianity, Christianity based on scripture, based on a relationship with Jesus Christ, based on a gospel of grace, based on love, biblical Christianity is the most tolerant of all, is the most open of all, the most accepting of all. My wife is a golfer. I'm very much not. Never mastered the windmill shot, gave up the game. But, 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 but sometimes I think about the gospel in golfing terms because I grew up kind of close to a golf course. I actually grew up within walking distance of two different golf courses. If I walked in one direction, there was the fancy country club. We were kind of out in the sticks and that's where they bought a bunch of land and built this really fancy schmancy golf course where, where tournaments, people come from around the world to play tournaments. And, and to be a member of that club, you had to have a certain income and work in a certain profession. And in the 70s, when I, was, when I was growing up there, you had to live in a certain part of town and your skin had to be a certain color. And you had to have a certain income and you had to go through interviews to make sure you weren't going to embarrass anyone. And then every year, you had to pony up an exorbitant fee. You had to do it all over again. But if you walked an equal number of steps in the opposite direction, you came to the municipal course. And the only thing you needed to play golf there was you wanted to play golf. Rich, poor, black, white, professional, unemployed, lived in town, lived down of town. Their only question was, you want to play? Actually, that's not completely true. This was in the 70s. Do you have some shoes? <laughs> could you put a shirt on? <laughs> and then you could play. And that's the offer that Jesus makes us. Do you want heaven? All you have to do is want it and be clothed in his blood. And that's, that's what our focus needs to be as we wrap up, family. If, if, we, if we get practical now and we say, okay, what do I do with everything that I just heard this morning? The answer is you invite someone to walk the road with you. To get, you say to someone, hey, get dressed and come with me. 
get, get clothed in Christ's blood. Let's follow him together. Because when we stand before God, and we all will, turns out all roads do lead to God, but some of them are one-way streets and some of them are two-way streets, if you follow me. Driving here this morning, I haven't noticed it before, but huge billboard at Hillside and Harry facing north. You will stand before God. And it was right. I usually don't get my, my doctrine from billboards, but that one was right. <laughs> we will stand before God. And when we do, he's not going to ask anyone, so were you Buddhist or Islam or, or, or Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or Jewish? And he's not going to ask anyone, so did you go to a Calvary Chapel? Or were you Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or Lutheran? Don't tell me you were Catholic. No, when we stand before God, the only question he's going to ask is, what did you do with my son? What does Jesus mean to you? What do we take away from this morning? Christianity is different. Christianity is true. It's the only path of salvation. It's the only way to eternal life. His name is Jesus. And we get to ask other people that question. Who is Jesus to you? Before they stand before God and God asks them, we get to ask them when they can still do something about it. When they can still change their answer. Who is Jesus to you? Because we know he's the only name given among men by which we must be saved. And God has chosen us to, to speak that truth and to share that truth. Jesus saves what do we do with what we heard this morning? We go out with confidence and we tell people, have faith in Jesus. You can and you should because this is the only road to heaven. We can do it with confidence because we know that biblical Christianity is defensible. Doesn't mean that we have to be defensive. We don't. My dad was an attorney. And I remember him saying as I was growing up and he'd be rehearsing his opening argument and he'd say, if the facts are on your side, argue the facts. If the law is on your side, argue the law. And if the facts aren't on your side and the law is against you, pound on the table and yell at them. We don't have to do that. Truth is on our side. Actually, that's backwards. We're on truth's side. We're on the side of truth. And so we can let truth do the heavy lifting. C.S. Lewis said, you don't have to defend a lion. Just let him out of the cage. He'll defend himself. The Bible will defend itself. Anybody willing to read the Bible on its own terms will see Jesus. They can't help it. Your truth will defend itself. No one can tell you your story. If you say, hey, this is my life because Jesus. This is how my life has changed because Jesus. No one can tell you that you're wrong because the expert on your life is you. We can let his story and his story being written down on the pages of our lives do the heavy lifting. We don't have to be defensive. We get to be open. We get to be accepting. We get to be gracious and loving to anyone willing to listen. Passionate, sure, but peaceful. Gracious, loving. Christianity isn't arrogant, but a lot of Christians are. Biblical Christianity isn't intolerant, but a lot of churches are. We get to defy those expectations. Because they're out there, right? 
The gospel defies expectations. If we are believers in the gospel, we get to defy expectations. Jesus wasn't the Messiah anyone was expecting. He defied expectations. If we're Jesus' people, if we're Christ's followers, how important is it that we defy the stereotype that we're a bunch of angry, judgmental people looking to pick a fight? How important it is that we defy the expectation that we're hate and fearful and ready to lash out the moment someone disagrees with us? Rob asked an interesting question on Wednesday teaching 1 Peter. He said, can you think of someone that you'd love to have as a neighbor that you really, really disagree with? He asked me the question in the office before, before service, and I immediately said, Mormons. I don't know why it's a theme this morning. It just is. I immediately said, Mormons. Best neighbors you ever want to have because their values are all about family and community and service. Let me pick my neighbors. Mormon on either side of me, one in front and one behind. They'll be for me when the storm comes and the tree comes down. And I get to tell them about Jesus. Doesn't that need to be our reputation? What an opportunity we have to defy, especially in our nation, the perception of evangelicals. What if we were those neighbors? You know, I don't agree with what they think about Jesus, but man, the joy, the peace, the patience, the goodness, the kindness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. I want them living all around me. I want, to, I want to live in a block full of Christians. Man, that's our opportunity to defy expectations so that we can get close enough to love in other ways so that we can get close enough to do the most loving thing that one person can do for another person is to ask, what are you gonna do about Jesus? What have you decided about the cross? Are you willing to listen as I tell you who he is to me? Can I share a few thoughts about how I know the Bible is true? What are you gonna do with Jesus? Lord, thank you that we know him. Thank you that he came for us, revealed himself to us. We were sinners, dead in our sin, lost and getting loster. And your light came into the world and your light shined into our hearts and your light illuminated your word and your light revealed truth. Thirty, forty different families of religion in the world, all promising enlightenment. Jesus says, I am the light. And we rejoice in you today.